Welcome to Profiles of Endurance. I'm Father Scott Vanderveer. Have you ever thought for a moment about what it would be like if you had an accident that left you unable to speak or unable to move? That's exactly what one Koksaki resident has been living for 31 years now. Allison DeFrancesco was in a traumatic car accident one day before the first day of school, her senior year. And for the past 31 years, she has been confined to a wheelchair and has been unable to speak. This incredible conversation with her mother and her niece gave me such insight into the virtue of endurance when it's brought to the kind of situation that cannot be escaped, even for a moment. Listen to this incredible opportunity for us to glean the wisdom of a mother who's received the call that none of us want to get, and a niece, her granddaughter, who has learned so much from her. I am joined today by Marie DeFrancesco and her granddaughter, Genevieve. And of course, during these COVID-19 times, we're not joined together in person. We are together in three different locations in Cooksaki. I'm at the parish rectory. Marie is at her home where she lives with her husband and daughter, Allie. And Genevieve is at her home just a block away from where I am. So I welcome you both with us. So grateful for your presence here today. And Marie, let's let's start by hearing a little bit about your family. Tell us about the DeFrancescos, your husband and your children. Well, um, Fran and I have been married, um, I think, 53 years. Uh, we have three children. Uh, Mark is the oldest, then Katie, Mary Catherine, and Allison is our youngest. Um, and the, the three children grew up. Did they grow up in the house where you live now, right in Cooksaki? No, uh, it wasn't until Katie was either 13 or 14 that we moved from Apple Blossom Lane over here. Ah. And uh, according to Katie, I ruined her life. <laughs> <laughs> now tell me, why, why would that ruin a little girl's life? Well, because she loved where she was and her best friend was next door. Mm. And, uh, you know, she just wasn't very happy with the move. Yeah, and that, that was, it was, when you're 13, a mile is a big deal. Yeah. A mile is a big deal. God bless her. Uh, so, so you raised your 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 children in these you know sweet little neighborhoods of Cooksaki. The house you live now is the you know a beautiful old house on a on a tree lined street. Um, and your youngest, uh, Allison, was in high school in the in the eighties. And and your your family experienced a tragedy in nineteen eighty nine. Can you talk to us about what happened? Yes. Um... It was the first day of school for me. I was teaching, and Allie was going to Holy Name, so her school started the following day. And uh, she stopped in my room, I think, and said that she was going um, swimming or something like that. And um, I came home from school and found a note on the refrigerator that she had cleaned her room. Hmm. And uh, I was thrilled about that. And the doorbell rang. And there was a plainclothes policeman, BCI guy. And he told me there'd been an accident and he wanted to take me to the hospital. Wow. So I rode down with him. Uh, Fran got there soon. He was working. Um, she was in, the, in a car with a friend of hers, Kim. And um, they were hit by a, a man in a truck. I, I don't know just exactly what happened. Um, but they were both very, very badly injured. Mm. Uh, Kim has made a, a much better recovery, I'm happy to say. Mm. And, so, and so Allie at the time, was that her senior year? She was going into her senior year. She was 16. 16. Um, to turn 17 in October. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So we had just spent the summer together in uh, San Diego. I was studying out there. I had a grant, and I didn't want to leave her home by herself. The other kids were out of the house, older. 
So she came with me. We had a wonderful, wonderful summer. Hmm. When you got to the hospital that day, what was the experience like? Could you see your daughter or was she away from you? No, I couldn't see her. Uh, I waited in the waiting room for, for Fran to come and for word of what was going on. It was just forever. Mm. And um, then they said they were taking her to Albany Med, and I still hadn't seen her. Mm. So we went up to Albany Med and waited in a room there. And then again, it seemed like forever, and um, no word. Uh, thank God Joyce and Richard Bruno came right up and waited with us. Mm. And uh, that's, you know, that's the nice thing about a close friends in small towns. Mm. Word travels fast. Well, anyhow, um, she was in um, Albany Med for like six weeks. She was in a coma. Um, and then she was transferred to New Medco Rehabilitation Center in Niskayuna, where she was for two and a half years. Two and a half years in the rehabilitation center. Yes. What When they made the transfer from the hospital at the six-week mark, what did they tell you to expect? I had no idea what to expect. Um, uh, I really didn't. I, Allie was very diaphoretic, meaning extremely sweaty. Mm. And when we... Uh, rolled her into her room. She was really hot, and I was all very upset about that. She was still unconscious, and um, I I said something to the to the aide who was th the same person who's with us now. I said, I don't know. She's all hot, and she said, Well, let's turn the air conditioning on. <laughs> <laughs> and I felt like, Oh my gosh, yes, something can be done. Mm. But it was a long, long time. I kept expecting whatever I knew of coma was that she would wake up all of a sudden, you know, and say, hi, mom. Yeah. But it wasn't like that. It was a very gradual, almost imperceptible changes that, um, and of course, you know, like most institutions, nursing homes and rehabilitation centers, there were times when they were short staffed and, you know, I was always a worry. So I don't think we left Allie alone there ever. We stayed all night with her. Um, the second year I had to go back to school. Uh, so it was, I would go after school. Fran would come after that. And I think she was alone at, at, at some points, but not for very long. We had, the kids were good about helping. Katie came home from college and Mark and his wife came home from Syracuse and uh, they helped people took turns spending the night with her my nieces did um, so she, she wasn't alone mm. what and and what kind of situation would you be in staying with her 24 hours a day was there a bed for, for people to stay in what was it like for you doing that well for a long time there was an, an extra bed from, for most of the time that we were there. And they had told us we could use that extra bed to lie on if we were spending the night. And uh, it wasn't until the last couple of weeks that they had to put somebody in that room along mm. with her. So it was really, it was just wonderful. I mean, as far as that goes, they were very kind. Um, we had our meals with her in the dining room with her or without her. Mm. Um, for a long time, she wasn't even able to go to go to go to the dining room. But um, then, my friend Angela, who was a, a school teacher from Germantown, well, from Hudson, was where she taught, uh, was had come out to visit us in San Diego, and she and Allie had formed kind of a bond. So Angela, <laughs> every time she came, she would bring Allie an elephant. So people thought Allie liked elephants, and she ended up with quite a collection. <laughs> Anyhow, Angela had her in her wheelchair and was walking down the hall with her and said to her, Allie, find a way to let me know where Joe's room is. 
And she said, Allie just nicely turned her head and looked at Joe's room. Oh, my. And she said, Marie, she's, she's conscious. She knows what's going on. So then she started the idea. We had a post we put on the tray on her wheelchair. And it said yes and no on it. And she was to look up for yes and down for no. Oh. And for a long time, that was our only communication with her. And then um, the, um, special, the director of special education at my school, Tom, came up to see her and said, you know, she's entitled to an education. Oh. I said, well, this is ridiculous. He said, no. He said, so they sent her to the CP Center over on Manning Boulevard. My. And uh, the first day she was there, she spent the whole day in a room with this man. I wish I could remember his name. I'm so grateful to him. He he didn't do anything with her. And I went in after, at the end of the day and I said, well, and he said, she doesn't belong here. And I said, what do you mean? He said, not in this room. He said, she's aware. Oh. And the people he had in that room were not very much aware. And he said, so they ended up getting her in a position where she was able to go back to Holy Names and finish the year. She went back to Catholic private school and finished the year? Yes. <gasps> she had an aide who went with her that was from the center. And... Um, Yes, that was wonderful. What a miracle. She even went to her graduation. Oh, my goodness. And then since then, she's earned 30-some college credits, always with the help of an aide and with a lot of communication devices. Oh, that's (sighs) it. That is a miracle. Never in those first six weeks could a mother imagine that. No, but I kept waiting for her to recover. You know, wow. to get entirely better to talk. Yes. You know, and, and that just never has happened. What did you do during that period of time we're talking about to to get through the days? I, I don't know if it makes sense to ask, how did you stay positive? Because no one would, would expect you to be positive. But how did you get through the days and the nights of that time? I think I was blessedly ignorant. Mm. I, I kept having this hope that she would recover fully. Mm. And um, people would come and pray for her. And this is a terrible thing. At one point, I felt like my faith wasn't strong enough. Mm. You know, if it, if I was asking for a miracle, I had to believe. And clearly, I guess I didn't. Oh, not enough. I'm so grateful you shared that because I think a lot of people can can relate to that feeling that if they had enough faith, then whatever it is they're praying for would come to be. And so that is an extra level of sadness for you that you had to endure because you thought you were somewhat responsible for her not having a miracle. Yes. Mm, what a hard, I hope that the listeners are hearing that because that's so important for people to know if they feel that way, that they're not alone, that, that, you know, Allie's mother and other mothers have felt that exact same thing. Um, Marie, tell me, have you come to accept that Allie will not return to what she was before the accident? Are you accepting of that, or do you still hope for a miracle where she will? I think there's a drop of hope, mm. but it's not an expectation anymore. What do you mean when you say it's it's a hope but not an expectation? Well, I would love it. I would hope for that. I The other day, um, Emily was talking to her. And she was upset about something, and they were talking in private. And Emily came running out to me and, and uh, called me and Lisa, her person who takes care of her, her aide, to come and see. She said, Allie's trying to say I love you. And sure enough, her mouth was moving very slowly oh. as if she were trying to form the words. Oh. So, you know what I mean? There's always that little edge of hope, which is almost painful. Mm. 
Oh, that's powerful to hear. Hope can be a little bit painful. Yes. Oh, Marie, wow. That's important. That's that's important. That feels really important for us to hear. Wow. Tell me I guess I guess before we go to today, I'd like to hear about the transition from the rehabilitation center to what happened next. Where did she go after those two and a half years? Oh, this was, we wanted to bring her home. And I just couldn't figure out how we were going to do that. And uh, Fran and I were both determined to make it happen one way or another. And she was allowed to come home on, on visits on the weekend for, you know, just for a few hours. And her bedroom was upstairs. It's a two-story house. Hmm. And there was no way we could get her upstairs. And we decided the only thing we possibility was to put an addition on the house. And we didn't know how we were going to do that. And all the equipment and everything was very, very expensive. And we didn't know how we'd do that. But it, it worked out. Um, and we found a, a carpenter who was very generous with his time and with his charges, and he built the room. And my brother and Lisa's husband, Bobby, built the deck on the room. Mm. And we, you know, she has her own bathroom with a tub that is, accommodates, go, you know, a stretcher that goes into it and has jacuzzis. And, uh, it, it's turned out to be just the right thing for her. Mm. And it made it possible. But there was a long time where I was just so worried about money. Oh. It was so, uh, this is going to sound very strange, but I had um, a, another friend um, who gave me a, an airline ticket anywhere I wanted to go. Oh. She she and her husband worked for TWA, and um, I decided I wanted to go to the desert because I wanted to pray. Wow. So I asked Father Tom Heine, um, where do you know any desert retreat houses or anything? And he said, well, no. He said, but my friend Rupa, who I also knew, is out in Arizona, and uh, why don't you give her a call? So I called her, and she said, well, if it didn't have to be a Catholic retreat house, she knew just the perfect place. Mm. So I, I was there for two weeks, and while I was there, Rupa is, um, well, she's a yoga teacher, Mm. And she's um, got some very interesting ideas. Mm-hmm. And one of the things she taught me was affirmations. Mm. And she said that I should say, repeat it often, I always have more than enough money to meet my needs. Ah. And I started to say it and believe it. And that took a lot of pressure off. Wow. So I figured well, I might not be rich, but I'll be able to do this, you know. Wow. And uh, that was that was quite an experience. What? A, that sounds like a, it changed things for you. Oh, it did. It did. Mm. Talk to me a little bit about change. What What changed in your family over these years where you went from before the accident to now, maybe it was five years later, Allie is now, the house has had an addition, and Allie is home, and it's 20, is it, it's always been 24-hour care? Yes. Always. So what a, what a, what a different kind of life that is. Talk, oh to, gosh, yes. talk to me about how you managed to figure all of that out, first of all. How did you, how does your family set up that kind of an organizational system? Very awkwardly. Mm. Um, a lot of trial and error. Um, well, two things happened. One is my son moved back from Syracuse where he was living and beginning his career and um, took a job on, on the Koksaki Police Force. Wow. And to be near us. And Katie, who was going to Plattsburgh uh, College, State University, came home and finished her senior year at um, St. Rose. Mm. So they were both close, and what a help. Wow. What a help. What, what a close family. 
Yes, I'm so lucky. I mean, a lot of my friends, their grandchildren are hither and yon. Mm. And mine have been so blessedly near. Mm. Mm-hmm. Poor kids. <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear that, Jen? <laughs> Maybe this is this is an interesting time to, to bring Jen into the conversation because Jen, yes. Jen was born... Quite a quite a while after the accident. What what year were you born, Jen? I was born in nineteen ninety eight. No, wow! So just yeah. wow. Life was very different when you were born than it was ten years before. Talk to me about what what it was like growing up in a house where you you call her Aunt Allie. What was it like being a child in a family? Where part of the family story is that with is it Nana and Papa, Granddad, oh, Granddad, Nana and Granddad with, with with Nana and Granddad in this in this great big family house is Aunt Allie. Talk to me about what it was like growing up in that in that scene. So, from a young age, I didn't really understand why my aunt was in a wheelchair. I used to like, oh, why shouldn't even talk? I remember like. When we were alone, I'd be like, you know, Aunt Allie, you can just talk. It's fine. I won't tell anyone. We can keep the secret. Oh. I just talked to her. And I used to, like, oh, my God. I used to oh. just try and pry her to talk. And she would just sit there and laugh at me. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> oh, that, well, I'm going to interrupt just to say that was one of the miracles is Allie could laugh out loud. Oh. She can't speak, but she can laugh. And it's amazing. That is amazing. What does it mean to you when you hear her laugh? It puts an instant smile on my face. Oh, just, she laughs. It's, what a, what a, there's a miracle. There's a form of a miracle. She laughs. Wow. So yeah. growing up and trying to understand this, what helped me a lot is my gro- my bro- oldest brother, when he was, I think, sixth grade, wrote this book. And it was like with pictures and drawings, handwritten it was must have been a school project or something. And that's a book that we still have at my grandparents today. Mm. So I remember reading that book over and over. And it just explained the accident, what happened. And, yeah, she was in a coma for two years. And then my grandparents built this addition. It's very simple terms. Wow. Words I could understand. And it's how, like, I explained to my younger cousins and my niece and nephew today. I still refer to that book because there is no better explanation for it wow so that's how i learned about the trauma and i don't think i'll ever fully understand what my family went through but i got the gist of it from this i don't know 15 page book isn't that remarkable? And for our listeners, just to take in the big picture of this, that oldest brother that you're talking about just got married in our church, which is located in, in like the triangle point from the three places where we're talking right now, in a big family wedding that was so joyful. It was such a wonderful event. So, And there was Aunt Allie. There was Aunt Allie in her glory. Oh, yeah. So, so... uh this might be a time to actually ask Nana to talk about what she observed in her grandchildren. When you would see Jen and and the other grandchildren come around, what would you see between the, them and Aunt Allie? Well, Aunt Allie's biggest clue for yes and no right now is her foot, her right foot, which is she can move that leg. Mm. And so they would talk to the foot. I mean, <laughs> stand at the foot of a wheelchair and say, Aunt Allie, can I have a piece of your candy? <laughs> and she'd lift her foot, you know, she'd say yes. Oh. Um, but Jen was just so amazing. Uh, Jen was eating dinner one night and food was dripping out of her mouth. And we said, Jen, what's the matter? What, what are you doing? She said, well, I'm Aunt Allie. another time jenna's gonna kill me but she was on the bed covered with a blanket and i said what are you doing and she said i'm going to the bathroom she was on the bedpan like (laughs) aunt Allie. yes oh jen the tenderness of that the tender another time jen was always on Allie's lap if she could be and she was in church we were at mass, and as you know, we sit up kind of close to the front. 
but she was on Allie's lap, and for some reason, she kept lifting her skirt and fanning her legs, mm. which was bad enough, but it amused Allie, who laughed out loud, <laughs> which drew all kinds of attention. <laughs> oh, it's so wonderful. What a relationship. And Allie and I got in a lot of trouble together. <laughs> <laughs> And whose fault was that, Jen? <laughs> I, I, I antagonized it. I egged her on. We, we got along great. I was just, from a young age, I wanted to be her, which sounds strange. Like, who? why would I want to be the person in a wheelchair? But I was just, like, wanted to see what life was like in her eyes. Wow. What's going on in her mind. And so I, rem- I remember taking baths with her. I don't remember flashing the priest, and I don't remember <laughs> <doing> <laughs> the bathroom. Oh, the bedpan. You would want to experience a day without talking so you could experience Aunt Allie's life. Yeah. That's powerful. And I think it helped me understand people more. Like, it kind of drove me into the profession that I'm in now. So I finish nursing school in May from SUNY Plattsburgh, which is... Congratulations. Thank you. And it just seeing my aunt's story and the people that came in and took care of her day after day and the love they had for her inspired me to want to give back to other people. Oh, my. It's a large part of how I view people and even my patients. They're more than their illness. They're more than the disease. They're more than a person who's confined to a wheelchair. Get to know the person more than their disease. I, I hope that when the next time I need uh, medical care that Nurse Genevieve is there because that's exactly what we all long for, isn't it? That's what we long for, you know, to not be a number, to, to, for somebody to know what we're going through. And, oh, that's beautiful. The, the AIDS. Talk to us about the AIDS because this is your, your home. And yet there is 24-hour care going on. How many AIDS, how many people are involved in Allie's care? Usually there are about five. Wow. You know, that switched between the different shifts. Uh, Lisa Near uh, has been with us from the beginning. She was Allie's aide at New Medco and came home with us. 31 years together. Yes, she lived with us for a while until well, I had to find her a husband. And, uh, so. <laughs> I'm half kidding. <laughs> I love it. There's so much more than AIDS I'd like to say to add. They're like part of our family now. Lisa, we call her Aunt Lily. She's been around long, as long as before I was born. So um, these AIDS are more than just people who come and take care of my aunt. Oh, yes. So everyone can testify in our family to that. How? And we've yeah. had some wonderful, wonderful people in, become part of our family for a time. Oh, that's that's amazing. What what is the relationship like between Allie and Aunt Lily? Wow, I think they're oh, close. They <laughs> joke around with each other. They get in trouble. <laughs> Aunt, or Aunt Lily knows Aunt Allie almost better. Not I don't know better, but she knows Aunt Allie to a T. To a T. There's not a C, not a part of her personality that is a, a mystery to Lily. Yeah, she no. can, Aunt Allie will have an expression on her face, and Aunt Lily will know what's going on. Like, oh, what a privilege for them both to have that relationship. What a privilege. What a privilege. My goodness. I, You know, it's, it's kind of well known in town that Aunt Allie is no pushover. She has, <laughs> she has a strong personality. How does that come out? Well, if you make her angry she can make that chair shake <laughs> wow wow yes man we talked about how she uses her foot to say yes and no but she also uses her foot to kick people in the rear end <laughs> <laughs> my goodness how how old is Allie now oh let me see she's 40 
She was born in 72, 48. 48 years old. So so the, the time you've had, very few people get to spend that much time with their children. And that, that, you know, most most children move out at some point, you know, in their late teens or 20s. And so you've had all of this time with her. And it brings up a, a story that I, I am cautious to bring up because it's so personal. But, but I think our listeners will be so enriched by you sharing this. And it's such a mystery. Talk to me about the story of Allie meeting God and what that encounter was like. Oh... This is a story that was told to me by her speech therapist uh, early on when she be, before well, she was still at the um, Center for Disability Services at uh, Cerebral Palsy Center, it was then. And um, the, they were using a Canon communicator, which um, we don't use anymore. There's a, uh, always a chance that you can manipulate what you want her to say because you have to hold her hand when she, you know, points to the letters. Mm. But... <clears throat> Anyhow, this aide was really, this therapist was very, very good at um, conversing with Allie, and usually she was right on. So anyhow, she told a story of asking Allie if she said, she, you know, you almost died. Did you meet God? And Allie said, yes, I did. Mm. And she said, well, what was that like? And he said, she said, he asked me if I wanted to, to stay or go back. And she said, I want to go back. I want to wait for my mother. Oh, I want to wait for my mother. What does that, what does that mean to you? What is it? What is she saying? She's going to be here as long as you're here. I think so. Wow. Um, oh. But I, I also think she, in some sense, maybe she thought I needed her help or, or knows I need her help. Hmm. What a, if that's the case and she had the chance to go to heaven but chose to stay here, what a what a what an amazing choice that she made. And oh, yes. what an amazing choice because staying here when would is the is the correct term for her condition quadriplegic? Yes. When you and mute. And mute and mute. That's a that's and that's I not think an easy. She knew that. Oh wow. And that's what I think, anyhow. And it'd be hard to. What hard does to. what does that do to your faith? How has your faith changed because of this? Well, you know, um, Richard Rohr, Father Richard Rohr. I don't know if you're familiar with him or not. He, He's wonderful, wonderful author. He and, oh, yes. Well, I read something of his recently where he said he was talking about his own experience with illness. And um, he said it, it came to him, the story from the Old Testament, from um, when Moses was talking to God, and he said to God, show me your glory. And God put him in a cleft in a rock mm. and covered his face with his hands and passed by mm. and then all he saw was his backside mm. and Richard Rohr said you know I feel like when I was going through this experience I was seeing only the backside of God oh and I, I think you know he wasn't aware that he was with him until it was over yeah. and I kind of feel that way a little bit too that there were times when I felt abandoned I felt you know, I think I told you I was waiting for a miracle and it didn't happen. Yeah. And um, now when I look back and I look at all the, the support and love and help and everything that I had through all of this, God was there. Oh. I mean. Ah. Oh. What I mean, all those days that we were coming home from, from this, the, the uh, rehab place at night, most of the time there would be a meal waiting for us. Wow. You know, that was just amazing, people's generosity. And you... Of course... Yes. Go ahead. I have the the two Kates, you know, um, two Kates to thank for that, too, because in the the beginning, when the accident first happened, we didn't have an, an answering machine. My brother bought us one because people were calling and we were missing the calls. 
And so my daughter, Kate, and my daughter-in-law, Katie, <laughs> mm. got on the phone and heard all these messages and left a message of their own. So that when people pick up the phone, they said, we appreciate your love and prayers and concern, but we also like baked goods. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. I love I mean, it. I mean, it was so embarrassing at the time, but now I, I think, you know, that gave people something to do, some way to show, oh. you know, and for us to feel the caring. How beautiful. You know, I've got an idea, Nana. What do you think during COVID-19 can they put on the outgoing message? We love your thoughts and prayers and we love toilet paper. And hand sanitizer. So if you want to drop that by, <laughs> I think we can all relate. We can relate. So Nana, you bring up something powerful, and I think it would be good for for maybe Jen, who's in in the in the nursing profession, to also speak to this. There are people listening right now who have a loved one who is going through hell, who just had a child in an accident, who's in a coma or who has lost someone they, they can't bear to live without, or has got a diagnosis either for themselves or someone else in their life that is just absolutely overwhelming. And you are someone who has gone through days and months and years of trial. What do you say to someone who says, I want to help this person, my best friend from college say, is going through this or my sister's going through this with her family and my family isn't in that position. How can they, how can they enter the world of someone who is struggling? How were people able to enter your world during those hard, hard days? And how, what advice would you give to people who are trying and would love to enter someone's world who's suffering, but don't know how to begin? Hmm, I think, Many of my friends weren't really sure how to help either uh, or what to do, but God bless them, they did something. They called or they sent a note or they showed up. Um, all these little things. Yes, Jen. Sorry. I'd like Go to ahead. add that, especially during these times, if a text is what you get nowadays or an email. I think, in my opinion, the most heartfelt Yes. To do at that time is maybe a handwritten note. Uh, oh, just even a card. Oh, yes, like a handwritten note. Of is you. Uh-huh. And honestly, it says a lot. Hey, I'm pray- praying for you. Like uh, that. Yeah, just put yourself so out there and, and reach out to the person, however you're comfortable doing it, because it's it really, really does make a difference. And let's. And maybe they don't answer right away, but they received it and they know it and. Oh, that's beautiful. I think it, it speaks volumes. Oh, that's Jen, thank you for saying that because you know too, I think one of the, one of the limits of a text message. A text message means something. It means something often quite important, but it's not the kind of thing you can put on your nightstand. It's right. not the you know, it's not the kind of thing that you want to maybe smell. You know, maybe it's somebody who means a lot to you and you want to take their handwriting and and see if you can smell the smell of their house or their perfume or cologne because they they made that for you. And that strikes me as very powerful. And it also strikes me as especially powerful coming from somebody uh, of your generation. Because as we were talking before we started, for our listeners, before we were talking about this, we were talking about the technology that needs to go into making an episode like this. And I was explaining that for somebody born in 1975, like me, I'm new to this because I was born with, you know, a a long phone cord in our house on the family telephone with a rotary dial. And Genevieve was born at a time where everything was digital. So I'm kind of an immigrant to this. But, But Genevieve, it means a lot, I think, that you, somebody who's grown up in a digital world, recognizes and is the one to raise for all of us handwritten old-fashioned communication has its place and it means the most. That's powerful. It does. That's powerful. Thank you for sharing it. Uh, Nana, this is a very personal question and you are allowed to pass. But I'm curious, do you still do affirmations? 
Yes. What kind of affirmations do you do now? Maybe it would help people to know how to enter. Affirmations really helped you. And there might be people who are saying, now that's something I could do. Can you give us an example of an affirmation you use right now? Well, I still like the, the, the one, I always have more than enough money to meet my needs. That's good. Um, as, you know, as you approach retirement and, and so forth and so on, I'm sure everybody feels a little bit of insecurity, but that helps. Um, I am lovable and capable. I Ooh. Mean, some, some days I really doubt myself. Mm. Uh, I, I just feel like nobody likes me and I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? Yes. Oh, I, we can all relate to you. Yes. Oh. So. Uh, Jen, what what have you learned about life from watching your grandparents? Oh boy, that's a lot. <laughs> I have to thank them for a lot. Um, mostly strength, mm. power in numbers. It's so important to like. They were always there for me growing up. Mm. Everything they've been there for me. Mm. So support system, just being strong. How to be strong, and they're a huge part of my faith too. Like even from. I remember younger, when I was really young, Brennan used to walk at Alley, still walks at Alley Church every Sunday, and I lived past the church, but he'd walk past the church, come and pick me up, and then we'd walk to church together, oh. and so I was like, I have to be ready a little earlier, because I'm going to walk with Brennan and Aunt Allie, so how to be, how to have faith, how to be strong, and really what family means, They're, we have our Sunday dinners, and oh. it's a tradition I plan to continue to have. Oh, please do. And please invite the priest. Please invite the priest. I've gotten to go to some of those dinners. I've gotten to go to dinner at this house. And it's like, it is the invitation that everybody, if you're in Kuksaki, let me tell you, you want this invitation. It is good. Oh my gosh. That's when Fran cooks, it's good. He is, he's a Fran is a fantastic cook. And I'd like to give, I'd like to give another tip of the hat to granddad because as the priest, one of the things that is my greatest joy is celebrating the 1130 Mass. It's one of the things I'm missing the most right now during coronavirus because in the same pew is the DeFrancesco family. And you can always tell if uh, grandkids are home from college or if the Syracuse branch of the family is home because they're there. But always in the same spot is Aunt Allie. And usually right next to her is Granddad. And, and then Nana right next to him. And Granddad is keeping an eye on Allie in a way that makes me want to cry during Mass. I mean, he's just so attentive. And uh, to give two hosts of the body of Christ to Granddad and then have him give communion to his daughter. It's, it's a very, very special experience. Yeah, and, and you have really put your faith to work. It's, it's beautiful. And I will say, I wanted to ask Marie for this interview, um, but I, I, I knew it was a very personal and powerful thing. And so I wanted to find the right time. And of course, the right time came when I popped into church one day. And of course, she was there because faith is just so central in the lives of, of this family. So I'm, I'm so grateful for that. And I'm so grateful that you said yes. I really, yeah, I'm so grateful. Uh, I have a, I just have a few questions to end with. And then if there's anything you'd like to, to share, certainly to, I'd invite you to. Uh, one of the questions we've been exploring in this series is the very often repeated phrase that many people believe everything happens for a reason. And some people believe that strongly and others don't. What is your take on the phrase everything happens for a reason? I don't believe that. I don't believe that. If that were the case, it seems to me that God somehow willed it mm, mm. or caused it or something. I don't think so. I think he sees you through. Mm. I mean, things happen, and then he's he's there. Yeah. But I, 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 don't, I don't think he plans to, you know, say, well, this will shape her up all right. Yeah. And I did need shaping up. Everything happens for a reason. Say and say more about that, Jen. Well, I don't believe that God purposely made my aunt have an accident. But if it weren't for this accident, then I might not be here right now. My 
father could have lived in Syracuse and I wouldn't exist. I believe that. Ah. God has it. That was a really good outcome. (laughs) He might not cause things to happen, but he has a plan and he does shape. And I think that there's always going to, there's always a plan for you. I got to say, this is why I love this question. I've got goosebumps right now because to hear both of you answer that uh, so honestly is so powerful for a number of reasons. One, your answer is certainly not a, a, a kind of glib answer. You guys have paid the price <laughs> and are able to answer that question and have your answer be listened to because we we're, we're very aware that you know a lot about life through what you've gone through. But there's something else I want to bring up, and that is I did a series that, that our listeners can turn to on the YouTube page that they're, they're listening to this on. Um, on does everything happen for a reason? It's a two-part question. And the thing that we established in that is this is an example of a paradox. And I think it's a paradox means that both yes and no can be simultaneously true. It's neither right nor wrong. It is, it is beyond human understanding. And so for Nana to say no and for Jen to say yes and have them both believe very similar things about life is powerful. And I just think you just showed us what a paradox is in a way that I think our listeners will understand in a way that nothing else could. So that's really, that's really beautiful. My, my next question is, you've had to endure. It's been 31 years since an accident that changed your life. And, and you don't get to take a day off from from this just I think a lot of us in coronavirus are being challenged that way we're like there's nowhere to go I was thinking the other weekend I'd love to take a break from all this maybe I can just go to the Poconos for a weekend well you know it's going on there too it's going on in Australia and Japan and anywhere you would go you don't get to take a day off from coronavirus and you don't get to take a day off from having uh, one of the most important people in your life be a quadriplegic who is also mute what do you think from your experience, I'll ask this of both of you, is the key to, to enduring? What's the key to practicing the virtue of endurance? Hmm. I'm not Something sure. Something I have learned is asking for help when you need it, whether that be through prayer to God or through family or friends and just trying to bring myself back and see, take a step back, see the big picture. Mm. Mm. And the other thing I, that I think of right away is love. Ah. Um, I don't know. It's. I think I, I love Allie and my family so much that it just makes sense yeah. to stick you it know, out. I always- I always try to remember too. Aunt Allie doesn't get a day off of it. Like, oh yeah. I always bring myself. I always have since I was younger into her shoes, and I'm like, imagine how worse it, how hard it is for her to be go through that. Oh, it's yeah, yeah. I was talking to another family member from your family the other day who was saying that um, if it is if it is, you know, if Aunt Al, if Aunt Allie had the chance, she met God, and she said no. I, I'm going to wait for my mother. I'm going to stay here. What what your uh, your your loved one said was, um, I hope time goes faster for her than it does for us. You know, it would be nice if she doesn't experience a year feeling as long as it does for us because she endures every day, like you said. Yes. And I thought that was very compassionate, a very compassionate way to say it. Um, the last question, the last question is... Oh, finally. <laughs> <laughs> Man, this priest never stops. He just keeps going and going. What, what are your best hopes for what life could be like after coronavirus? You who have endured so many other things. What do you, I'll ask this of both of you again. What do you hope will be true about our life after coronavirus is a memory? One of the things I notice is that people are looking for something good. Um, I see it all the time on television. They're putting uh, stories on about people who are helping other people. Uh, we're working together as a parish. Our, our people are helping other people and mm. looking for the best it, 
that can be. And I'm hoping that lasts. Mm-hmm. I agree to go off of that. I think we're united right now. And mm. I know my faith has been stronger in recent days. And everyone's trying to help out each other. We're always looking for ways to help. And I hope that stays the same. I don't hope. I'm reaching out to each other. I hope that's something that we continue to do post-corona. What a beautiful, beautiful hope. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Oh, oh, you done good, Nana. I'll tell you, you're you're uh, you're doing a good job with this generation. So you know what oh, I'd love to do. They are oh, wonderful. I they are wonderful, and I mean, I get to see a lot of families. And but I will say this: for those listening in Kuksaki, there'll be many people who listen to this who never have the pleasure of meeting you. But for those in Kuksaki, they they we all admire your unity and your connection to each other. So thank you for modeling that for us. And I want to turn now to the listeners just for a second before we go to just take a second to savor this interview. Because, you know, one of the things they tell us, uh, neuroscience always says that if you want to really ponder something meaningful or beautiful, you should hold it inside your heart for 15 seconds because our memories are very short. And, And you might have heard something that touched you, but let's see if we can make it stick a little bit. What what did you hear Genevieve and Nana say that is going to stay with you? What is something they said that brought you hope? What was something they said that was was surprising? Nana said sometimes hope hurts a little bit. Or it wasn't until she found affirmations that she was able to find some some calm in the storm. What What did you hear that you want to stick with? What's something new that you learned that you hadn't ever maybe thought of before? Who are the uh, the heroes in your life? Who are the Aunt Lilies who have been there for you? Who are the people that have have been there for the long haul? How can our lives all be better after coronavirus? After all these this past little period of our history that's been so defined by separation, how can unity be part of our new reality? We thank you for joining us today for this episode of Profiles of Endurance. And thank you, Genevieve, and thank you, Marie. We are so grateful for your time and for this sacred, sacred conversation. God bless you both.